are the unfairest sex, three women, three glasses of wine, and a whole world of problems to navigate. Yes, there's going to be some rage, or some rage. Yes, there's going to be some rage, but there's also going to be a hell of a lot, hell of a lot of laughing, learning, catharsis, and camaraderie along the way. So grab a glass of wine and join us. You can tell we haven't done this for a while. No, but I'm also very excited to have Em back. Welcome back, Em. Hello, thank you. I'm very excited <laughs> to be here. Um. Oh, God, I'm so excited. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this all week. So uh, should we? Um, OK, so it's no surprise this. Sorry, what did you say? Cause I posted it on Instagram um, over the weekend, but I'm going to lead with it because it was, was one of those moments. I was like, literally, I'm sorry. What did you just say to me? Like, you've got no idea who I am. So context was I just left the garden centre. I was in really high spirits because I just bought myself some very lovely plants. And uh, I was packing my plants into the boot of my car. And this gentleman got out of his car. And he might have been like in his 60s, 70s, like that kind of age. And um, Gentleman is generous. I Well, I just feel like, you know, we, should, we shouldn't we should lower our standards, you know, just because other people are being Absolutely. mean to us. Um, and as he kind of came around the back of the car, he goes, oh, that's a nasty bump at the back. And he's he was absolutely right, right? So, like, my husband reversed my car into a concrete post about six, seven years ago. So there is this beautiful crack down the side of my bumper, and it is significant. So I said to him, yeah, about six, seven years ago, my husband drove my car into a concrete post. To which he goes, likely story, keep telling yourself that. And I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, you, you've never met me. You've got no idea who you are. I was then disappointed in myself because my reaction to that was like, no, no, that really did happen. My husband did do this. I was in front of my dad. It was hilarious. We've never let him live it down. And he went, yeah, okay. And then that was kind of the end of the conversation. But you know, like, I cannot believe that your, A, your instinct is that I was lying to you. The second thing I was using my husband as a scapegoat. And the third thing is that, like, it must have been the female driver who caused the accident. And I was a bit like, fuck you. Like, you've got no idea who I am. Um, so yeah, it's just one of those moments in the middle of the car park. And I just was like, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. I was in a really good mood with my plants. And uh, sexism kind of like punched me in the face. On the, yeah, the, the 70-year-old that's far more likely to crash his car than the, the 30-year-old as well. Yeah. But he was with his wife. who said nothing. I'm assuming his wife. He was with a, a female of a similar age. And um, she didn't say anything throughout the whole uh, mm. passage between us. Probably not allowed. <laughs> Maybe not. But yeah, like, and I think when we, we talk about everyday sexism, this this is what I'm talking about. It's these little, like, ankle bites about, you know, there's just sexist assumptions that just get carried through. And you were just having a lovely day being yep. a new plant mum. <laughs> and, 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 and just someone came and ruined it. I would just never walk up to somebody in a car park and be like, Oh, uh, you know, like, I, I just wouldn't do it. Do you know what I mean? I just so never... also, he assumes you you have caused that. And so then he's like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, stick it in and twist <laughs> it around as well. You know, oh, I'm going to just make this woman feel really shit about being a woman who clearly reversed into a concrete post. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so rich. <laughs> bullshit. As you say, like the poor, well, I say poor, but, you know, this woman standing by, where's the allyship yeah god knows what life she's had with that dickhead she's probably been worn down and then ali hit us with the stats come on because you you i did i went and did a bit of research they're in my car i wrote them down so i got them right on the thing hang on so next time someone has a go you can be like just wait there this for a is it gonna yeah. open the glove blocks glove blocks okay here i go and this is what's funny about it right so the stats really do point in favor of women being better drivers and you could argue it's because women are behind the wheel less or we spend less time on the roads etc but statistically we come up we have less crashes and we have no, less fatal crashes this. 
in Australia, you know, at, at the mine sites where you have those trucks with the wheels that are bigger than a person, yeah, they have created um, school time shifts specifically to attract female drivers. So you can drop your kid at school, go to the mine site, drive the giant trucks and go and pick your kids up um, when the school day finishes. And it's because there's finally recognition, I mean, not in wider society, but, you know, of the fact that women are better drivers. And, yeah, maybe it's because we're more naturally cautious. And we've touched on this topic, at least now, our discussions, I don't know, on the podcast, about how um, uh, the shift in the brain in terms of risk-taking and consequences is later for males slash, um, you know, not at all or less so. And Ali, you're going to hit us with the stats. But the thing I thought when I saw that was that in the UK, you used to be able to get lower uh, car insurance premiums as a woman because of this overwhelming body of evidence that we're less likely to cause accidents. And then that wasn't allowed because of the Equality Act and it's sexist, apparently. And I was like, well, no, it's not sexist. It's evidence-based. And if the evidence should shift, if we become as bad drivers as men in the future, then that's fine. I'm sure the insurance companies will be all over it. They love their data. But in the meantime, it is fact-based. And I just also love the preoccupation with, oh, yes, no, well, okay, women have to, we, we better make sure that women have to pay the same premium as men because that's sexist. But we can get paid less in our jobs, get promoted less, be more likely to be, you know, victims of domestic violence and rape and murder and everything else. But yeah, let's focus on the insurance premium shall we it'd be it'd be interesting actually i assume the stats are probably oh, it might be from this um the boxes that you can get in your car now to show what kind of driver you are whether those stats from the those boxes will say actually it was right women can have lower insurance because if you have one of those boxes in your car you're more likely to get better insurance well that's a hot tip for all our driving. female listeners right which is get a box in your car because you're likely statistically, I mean, you might be the anomaly, you might be a terrible driver, but statistically you're likely to be better. And uh, then they've got the hard, cold evidence to prove it and you can pay less commensurate with your lower salary. Yeah. And if you do find yourself in a car park having some guy telling you that you're scapegoating with your husband, um, here are some stats that you can throw back in their face. So 74% of traffic deaths are caused by men within the UK. Uh, men are also responsible for 70% of injuries on the road, 59% of slight injuries. They're twice as likely to cause an accident on the road and three times as likely to kill a pedestrian. So I mean, That's insane, right? Sorry, toxoplasmosis apparently increases your chances of having a road accident like twofold, um, which is I found insane when I that's learned that happy, because yeah. it's like don't let people have toxoplasmosis. It's like what you get from kitty litter, which comes from somewhere. It's the thing that... Cats give mice in their brains to make the mice come towards them and then they give it to their humans. I've had it, which is why I spend my life in service to my cats. Um, but anyway, but, but seriously, if the stats were flipped, right, if it were women doing those things, do you think we'd be allowed to drive a car? That's a very good point. People would be like, get women off the road. Because this There's is still the myth that we're bad drivers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I referenced in my Instagram video. It's like, you know, if you've got to go around spouting sexist stuff, like just do some bloody research first. So at least you know that what you're saying has got some sort of truth to it. And obviously this one doesn't. So like you are literally walking around having jokes on things which has just never had any basis to them. There's always jokes, aren't there, about women parking. And like I, for a fact, my mum is 
was a great is a great parker m is a bloody genius when it comes to parking and some of the spaces that she's managed to get us into over the over the years have been quite incredible um but you know like it stresses me out to park i'm not a bad parker it stresses me out to park though because i have that thing in the back of my head that someone's going to see me take two goes at it and and go oh it's because she's a woman but like my partner is a terrible parker like we've swapped I think the thing that freed me the most was that like and I think a lot of women go through this we literally walk into situations where we're doubted from the go and I think Mm. that there was that really interesting TED talk where there was that um, trans woman who was talking about the fact of she was comparing her life as a male and then the way she's treated now as a female and she said like one of the first things is that you know she was either corrected a lot but she was also told she was lying a lot and I think that that is the thing that threw me the most in that situation is like, why would I lie to you about this? Like, what would I possibly gain from lying to a complete stranger about a story that neither of us like, have shared between? It's just, it's just such yeah. a weird assumption for you to come to this conversation thinking this female who I've never Not met only am I must be lying to me. But then I'm going to yeah. lie about it. And the yeah. audacity to, you know, <laughs> yeah. say it to you in the first place and then to double down. Yeah, I did, did. Yeah, and I was just like, yeah, yeah. So this is when, when I talk about everyday sexism. Like that's what that's what we navigate, right? We then have to, and then I, this, it's why I kind of kicked myself because my then instinct was to then try and validate why I wasn't lying to him, you know? And I like, why do I have to try and prove myself to him? I should have yeah. just been like, all right, you know, fine. And I got in my car. But like, I felt in that moment, I had to be like, no, I'm not lying to you. Why did I lie to you? This thing absolutely happened. Here's the full story. And yeah. I wish I'd just been like, all right, buddy, seventy four. Death accidents on the road are caused by men. Stick it. And exactly. Then walk yeah. <laughs> and I didn't. And I wish I did. All right, boomer. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, now that's you. Now everyone can do that. That's the sorry. What did you say? So yeah. sorry. What did you say? Seventy-four percent of deaths are caused by men. So do one <laughs> on the road. We really should have <laughs> on the road. Though, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably. I mean, I mean, that's probably like a, a low percentage compared to all deaths. Y- yeah. But we don't know that for sure, so we're not going to spell any facts here. <laughs> but we do know 74% of traffic deaths in the UK are caused by men. Um, and that's recent recent studies. So. so there you go. That was my that was my moment of the weekend. My plants are now safely in new soil at home, and they're very happy. I'm very happy. Um, but yeah, it just kind of free me <laughs> on my Sunday, Sunday lunchtime stroll. Right then, uh, on to today's topic, we are going to be covering pregnancy and all the fun stuff that comes with that. So things such as like having a baby, not having a baby. Uh, We're also going to look at like the complex relationship between feminism and the pregnant body and kind of like throughout history how that's changed. Uh, We're also then going to look at like certain taboos around being a stay-at-home parent and also women who choose not to have children, kind of the backlash they get from from the media, from society, from, you know, from people within the inner circles. So with that in mind, is there anything that anybody wants to start on or shall I just jump in? I think you should kick us off. Uh, Okay. I think a really good place to start then is how pregnancy and the, the potential of pregnancy has a hold on women for, you know, at least the first 20, 30, 40 years of our lives. And what I mean by that is the constant comments about when are we going to have children, uh, the constant comments about, you know, why aren't we having children and the expectation that we will one day use our bodies for, for, you know, for that purpose. 
I also find that because I'm 30 years old, I am fully aware that my biological clock is ticking. I'm also at a point of my life where I put a lot of time into my career. So I'm very fortunate that um, I've got quite a good wage. My husband's got quite a good wage. And arguably, we're at a really good point of our lives. We're you know, a very stable part of our lives where we could probably start bringing children into the world and be in a good place to, you know, in a good place to do that. But equally, because I've invested so much time into my career, I'm also in a really good place to accelerate, you know, that that progress, that success. So it's a really, for me, it's a really catch-22 at the moment. And I think that I spend a lot of time aware of my clock, aware that, you know, it's a decision I probably have to be making over the next probably five or six years. And I think one of the biggest things for me is just making sure it's the right decision and that I don't end up regretting either decision I take. Because at the moment, I would say I'm on the fence. I don't desperately want children. I've never been broody. I've never looked at other children and gone, oh my God, you know, something's missing from my life. But ultimately, I don't want to not have children and then live to regret that decision. So I think where I am, there is a 50-50% chance that I have them and regret them. And equally, I don't have them and regret them. And so I think a lot of my time is spent trying to figure out the right decision for myself and my husband. Um, And even though I'm on the fence and I don't know if I want them, I still let it to a certain degree influence what's going on in my life. And that's really infuriating that men seem to be able to go through, through their lives not really having to plan ahead for things like this. But, you know, a really good example, I know I'm not the only one who considers, considers this sort of stuff, but in fact, actually, Cheryl Sandberg spoke about it in her book, um, Lean In. It's this idea that women s- stop themselves going for promotions when they find out they're pregnant or they stop themselves making a career move because they're aware that actually the maternity package is good in the company they're currently at. So why would they then risk moving to a different company where the maternity package may be slightly different or worse? So I think that you know, there's a lot of women in the world, a lot of people in the world who, even though there are no children in their life currently, still go through life thinking about children constantly. And I find myself in that position at the moment. It's one of those things about future-proofing, right? I had a really interesting conversation with one of my friends about five years ago when she and I were both like, well, we don't want them now, but we're kind of, so back then we were both about 35. And that's when everyone, you know, really reminds you that uh, the clock is ticking. And it's difficult. And I mean, I, I chose then, and so did she, that, well, we didn't want them then. So we weren't going to take the risk of future-proofing, of, you know, trying to conceive a child that you didn't want at this moment in time in case you might want them in the future and regret not having them. Um, but the reality is, you know, I have been fortunate enough to end up with one but my friend is now she wants one um, and her husband and they have really been struggling and it may well not happen for them and it's just a really you know and that's not even that's not society that's not misogyny that's individual biology I wouldn't even say you know there's I think we've discussed this before a lot of the stats about um, fertility are really outdated um, but in general terms, the older you get, the less, you know, the less likely, particularly as a woman, you are to be able to conceive. And it really sucks that th- this is 
finite, you know, and for each couple, because it's not just the woman, but for each couple there there can be an end date and you don't know when that is. Um, and it's really difficult to navigate. And especially today, I think, where, you know, w- women are going to university, often doing advanced degrees, trying to establish our careers. And then before you know it, you know, you're mid to late 30s. Um, and, and it's not, it's not just time, of course, you know, there, there are people in their twenties who, who have fertility issues and, and sperm has fallen off. The quality of sperm has fallen off the edge of a cliff, you know, spermageddon and all that. Um, but it's, is that, uh, is that an official scientific term? Spermageddon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it. happened over like the last 10 years, I want to say, at least in, you know, Western societies, it's a reflection of our diet, our lack of exercise, mm. uh, People say, you know, the, the the number of sort of chemicals that we just absorb um, through, you know, everything, household chemicals and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, sperm quality. <sighs> so it's not just the women. It's I think I think the stat is, I might be making this up, but I think it's like 60% of the time it's an issue with the woman, 40% of the time it's an issue with the sperm. Okay. And of course, um, go back to our Bonnie Hatcher episode to talk uh, to hear us talk a bit more about uh, future proofing when it comes to freezing your eggs and things. So we won't cover that on on this. But I mean, I'm I'm th- uh, how old am I? Thirty six, nearly thirty seven. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, my my clock is definitely rapidly going. Um, but it's only a few years like a few years ago I was at a point where I was like actually do I really want them I wasn't like I was really not sure um five years prior to that I really wanted them um but circumstances meant that it wasn't gonna work my partner went back to university and it you know financially we couldn't do it but for me actually that was great because it meant that I could move on with my career and what have you which I wouldn't have done otherwise um but of course, there's pressures from everywhere. Can we just unpack Not... that though? Yeah, a bit more about why you wanted them, and then why you weren't sure if you did want them, and what I happened did. in your life. Because I think that might be interesting for people. Yeah, listening. so I think the reason the reason I wanted them, I think I had always thought I was going to do marriage and babies and stuff the way my parents did. So my mum had me when she was 28. She had my brother when she was 30. Um, and I'd kind of got that plan in my head that that's what I would do. I think I was 28 when my when my partner's time went back to university. Um, and so, like I said, financially, that wasn't going to work anymore because we went down to one salary. And then my career just kind of went, like, went really, really well. And so, it, it, yeah, very suddenly. It was the hand movement. Uh, <laughs> it was. Um, and, um, and I was like, I've now got disposable income. I've got, I'm having a lovely time that I, I can do stuff I couldn't do before. Mm. Um, actually, maybe I don't want them right now. And part of that was probably also that a fair number of my friends still didn't have children. And so, like, uh, there's not lots of, there weren't loads of babies around. So I think that was part of it. And then, um, yeah, over the last few years, that's kind of stayed the same. That I've been like, do I want them? Do I want to change my life? Do I want to go through like do I want to stop doing all the things I love and um you know and we've we've talked about it both probably before and then since you've had your baby um you know I know that if you're sensible about it and and part of it is luck when it comes to having a 
not a good baby but you know if you some babies are can be hard and have colic and various other issues um but I know that you can carry on doing a lot of stuff but I was on a I really really don't want to stop um but over the last aspect of sorry to to cut in but do you think there's an aspect of what we've posited in our group chats about you know your as you say your career took off right and yeah you you or one or me definitely gets that you know there's an aspect of getting fed in terms of I don't want to use the word ego because it's negative but ego basically um of being you know at the top of your game and being really well respected and you know sort of the prestige that comes with the roles you're doing and that that does feed you in a way and you can see what happens to women alongside you if you have peers which you know I mean in 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 what you do probably fewer peers than than I've had at times in my career um and it's almost like yeah the more successful you get it's it's the golden handcuff or whatever but it is that thing of well I don't want to. I I don't want to let this go. And and that thing about society not valuing a mother's work, absolutely, you know, women's work. I yeah. I I am. Um, that's a yeah. It's a very very good point. Um, I I I do very much enjoy being really good at what I do and being sort of appreciated, rewarded, whatever, and and respected for that. And you're absolutely right. I think the thought of someone going, oh well. Sh- she's just a mum like and I know that's like I don't think that about mums anyone who is a stay-at-home mum or anyone who's on maternity leave I don't think that but people do if someone said that about me or I would I don't know I I yeah you're probably right um it's um there is definitely an aspect of that but also uh I had about six weeks two months off last summer when I was between contracts and I felt like my brain was just dying and then the idea of like stopping work for a long period of time yeah. is also another aspect of that. Yeah, you feel like is um, my brain going to atrophy? And also not only is my brain brain yeah. going to atrophy from lack of stimulation, or for a lot of women, you know, I remember talking to my friend who is a postdoctoral scientist and she was saying, you know, in her field, and this was when she was still working in labs, you know, and also I mean, there they have the grant to grant, you know, hand to mouth system. Um, but also, you know, if you're if you're out of the game for a year, you're you you may not be able to get back in because the the knowledge, you know, the research moves so quickly, and that's a reality for a lot of women. I remember someone saying, I have no idea if it's true, but apparently Egyptology moves so quickly that if you take any time out, you'll never be able to catch up. Which of course must be bullshit on some level because like people still go to university and learn it from scratch and then are able to have a career in it. Um, but there's the thing of like, yeah, if I take time out and and have children, am I going to go insane from, you know, atrophy, lobotomy? And also something that I really experience, you know, a, a real thing is baby brain, you know, and I, I, my understanding is it is biological. There is a, you know, there are real things going on with the hormones and everything in your body. I don't know if that's true. Someone can tell us if it's not. But certainly I, you know, in the first trimester between the nausea and the exhaustion and on top of that, I, di- I just, like, I ha- I started having to triage what I would do in a day at work because I had, you know, maybe three to five hours of, 
brain power and emails and things that, you know, or research that I used to be able to do, you know, with take it in my stride would really knock it out of me. And I used to have to get people to proof my emails because by the time I got to the end of the sentence, I had forgotten what I'd written at the start. Um, and I've said this to you guys, you know, when you sort of said, oh, might you come back and join us? I've sort of said, I don't think I have the the, the brain power. And, you know, different people experience it differently. Um, but at least for me, that has been a very real effect as someone, as as a person who is used to being at the top of her game and having a very sharp mind. You know, I, I felt like I was in this fog for a long time. And now I feel like I'm maybe back to maybe 80%, but I still feel like I'm not entirely there. You know, I'm not as sharp as I was. And uh, obviously, as you mentioned, and I'm pretty sure I've read this too, that there is actually a chemical in your brain that gives you that, in inverted commas, baby brain. And and then, as you say, on top of being exhausted. Um, but something that one of uh, some of my male friends, and I think this is really helpful because I, a lot of I've heard a lot of people say to mums, like mums who have come back to work, they've mentioned baby brain if they lose their words or if they would. And it's just not very nice. Like, because it's like they already feel self-conscious enough that they've been maybe been out of it for a little bit and they're catching up and then they know they've got a bit of brain fog and then you comment on it. But what some of my male friends who said, you know, I feel like I've got a bit of brain fog from the exhaustion started co- sort of commenting on their own baby brain. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know whether if I was a mum, I'd find that helpful. But I thought, oh, I think that's quite nice that they're saying, oh, I'm I'm a mess like because I'm utterly exhausted um I've been I've seen a few videos recently of like men who are really tired like rocking a non-existent baby (laughs) forgotten that it's not there (laughs) I've done that before I'm in the pram and she's not even in it but I'm just like um sorry my husband just overheard what we were saying and he just walked past and he's like this podcast is going out after your interview tomorrow right because I'm interviewing tomorrow (laughs) and here I am but I'm not at the top of my game it's Monday it's going out on Monday it's fine excellent Um, hopefully I will have to be there as as we've said to you many times you're not at your top your 50 percent is most (laughs) people's Maybe add that in, in. like, yeah, if you want to quote for your interview, just be like, this is what my friends think of me. That's what my husband used to say to me, which is very sweet, which was, you know, if you're you're triaging, you're probably doing like a normal person's day. (laughs) There you go. A normal person's work day. But this is one of the things that I think, Ali, you know, this is one of the topics that we want to touch on, this tension in feminism, right, to to even admit – that these things are happening to you sometimes yeah. feels like you're being a bad feminist because there was this whole push to, well, not deny, because a lot of the stuff that people claimed was biological difference was absolute bullshit. You know, the fairer sex and hysteria and how we just can't do maths and we can't do spatial awareness. Watch me park, motherfucker. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> so you get that as a bumper sticker. Yeah. so so you know and and it was because of millennia of us being told that you're stupid and you know stay in your lane so of course there was a there was this thing of of undoing a lot of that rather than denying I would say undoing a lot of the bullshit right yeah but then what I found through this very or you know organic that word but you know for me pregnancy and mothering and all that sort of stuff is 
very, you know, it reminds you that you're an animal, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And that there are things like hormones and biology. And then, you know, you're in this tension of, well, do I acknowledge these forces or do I try to deny them and fight against them? And again, I just want to say, because I know these things can really, you know, trigger stuff for people. I'm only talking from my personal experience. But for me personally, first trimester was was really challenging. Um, second sort of got brain power back and stuff, as they say, you know, it's the, it's the baby honeymoon time. And then third trimester, you, you, you're just exhausted and, you know, um, and then, yeah, uh, for, for, I mean, you can hear me now. I'm, I'm not very eloquent. Um, but I mean, I remember when I was coming up to, you know, a month before I went on mat leave and, and here you go off four weeks before your baby's due. And I was just counting down the days because I just, I mean, I love what I do and I love being good at it, but I just was so ready to move on to this new part of my life. And that aspect was just, it was draining rather than being fun at that point because my brain wasn't working the way it used to. And, you know, my body didn't have the energy it used to and all those sorts of things. And also maybe my interest wasn't there as much as it used to be because I was preoccupied with these other considerations. I, I just was, yeah, really wanting to move on. And I remember, sorry, Ali, this is this, and this is me rambling, but I remember something else, which was you telling me that one of your friends was doing TRX workouts like four times a week, right up until she gave birth. Yeah. And I was like, I can like, I mean, I'm pushing myself to probably four times a week waddle like three to five kilometers a day. And I was doing these these uh, pregnancy workouts, which were like 15 minutes each, and you could do two on a good day, you know, if you were feeling up to it. Uh, and and there were, this is probably another thing, but, you know, judging yourself against other women um, and societal expectations, because I was just so ready to just nothing for a while, you know, before my baby came. Yeah. Anyway, that was a very long. No, right. it's also, you can guarantee talking, talking about like comparing yourself to other people. The person doing the TRX routines, I bet, was at some point told she shouldn't be doing that that exercise, and that it yeah, would be bad. So true. Baby. Like that um, story that one of you sent, I think maybe you, Ali, about the um, climber who kept being told that, you know, she was risking her baby and everything. Um, So she was like, she was an Olympic climber or something and she continued to climb like more or less right up until she gave birth. And, you know, she was having to, again, justify herself and say, well, you know, I'm doing it safely. Um, And for her, that that was great and fine. And everybody... I don't know. I think everybody just needs to listen to their own body and you well, know, do and what's also right for them. Like your, but... your mental health is so important during and after your birth, of course. And so if climbing is her thing, it's her one thing that's going to keep her sane. She knows how to do it safely and she'll know at what point she should stop. And, you know, like I knew someone who was a big runner and she carried on running until one day she threw up when she ran. And then it was like, OK, well, I guess I'll stop then. Yeah. And even if it's not your one thing, if it's, you know, a top 50 thing, who's anyone else to tell you, you know, and this is one of the, sorry, and sorry, this is, this is another theme that I think we wanted to touch on, which is uh, societal expectations. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, you know, the thing of whether you choose to have children or not, and then what you bloody do if, if you do um, choose to have children. And there's just this constant 
judgment, you know, oh, you better stay fit and healthy. Oh, you better not do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and actually most women, the vast, vast majority, care more about their unborn child than anyone else could, bar possibly their partner who's equally invested. And they will know what is right for themselves, particularly if they ignore that white noise from society and they just listen to their inner compass, as it were. Um, But you get so much, so much white noise that it's very difficult to sometimes. And you find yourself doing things, um, you know, because you're concerned about what other people think rather than it being what's right for you. Yeah, I I once went out... Go on, so as I say, you also, I, I think, find yourself in this kind of paradox as well. It's like, am I making this decision because I want to make this decision or am I making this decision because of like, because of that white noise? And I think like yeah. me sitting here going like, do I want kids? So I wouldn't, you know, I think I've said this a few times, but when I met my husband, now husband, when I was 18, I was like, I don't want to get married. I don't want to have kids. And I was 18 and I was like, really absolutely not like really absolute position on this then I left law school and I was like oh okay maybe there's more to life than just working maybe like we are on the planet to like bring about a family and have kids and you know that that's what the meaning of life is and so suddenly an interesting kind of the concept of a family came about but I've never been broody I've never desperately wanted children um more recently I kind of had conversations with Joe and I've said um interestingly like I would love to understand the capabilities of my body and I think that if I never become pregnant, that I would mourn the loss of the opportunity to truly understand myself from that perspective. But I said to to Joe that that isn't enough for me to then want a child in the world that I'm then having to raise for the next, you know, for the, well, for forever. Um, and I, and for me that there's that competing, you know, I'd love to understand myself. I'd love, you know, as as a as a female, I'd love to understand what I'm truly capable of, but I still don't want the child in my life. You know, that, that still isn't a thing for me. But all and of I, that is a reason. That's that's all like that's all for you. It like, is for me, like, but I'm saying, yeah. The societal pressure that then comes with it. Yeah. Like, Do you know though, that is sorry, that is such an interesting I mean, there's so much there, but it's so interesting because in my experience, um, pregnancy and you know when you when you're coming towards childbirth it was really interesting when I went to these antenatal classes and so my my view was okay well this is obviously like a very scary thing because we're taught that by society you know that that it that childbirth is this huge terrifying painful thing right so I would I would disagree with that I think we're taught that it's like the most natural thing in the world like it's a bit like la-di-da about it but we then see on TV programs and films people screaming and like yeah. making like making a whole fuss about it. And I, but then people who've told me about their pregnancy, they they don't say, oh, it wasn't painful, it wasn't, you know. But people are kind of prepared to be in agony and then mentally can't cope with it. Ah, yeah, so I I would disagree. I I honestly think media is. Hang on, Ali. Ali, are you talking about childbirth itself, or that like motherhood and pregnancy is natural? Because I think, I think we're all of that, it. I right. think like as pre- as a pregnant woman, generally you are shown in society or magazine covers, in films, in books, etc., that it's the most lovely nine months experience, right? That you're glowing the whole time, that you're growing life, right? It's the most natural thing anyone can do. Then you go through the birth, and absolutely, like you know, films 
depict a 10 minute scene where a woman's pushing but it's kind of it's jovial like it's always like they end up headbutting somebody or they squeeze someone's hand too hard they never talk about the like the rips and the, the tears and the the drugs like they never go into the actual trauma of that period of time and then all of a sudden the baby's in the hand and then the mother automatically loves it and the baby attaches immediately and all that kind of stuff and i i would say that like childbirth is often shown in quite positive lights and it's not until i've started actually talking to mums that i've gone oh right there's there's bits to this i didn't know about the the brain thing like baby brain as an actual thing until like a couple of years ago i didn't know about like tears until i spoke to you know joe's sister like i really don't think those things are shared a lot. See, that's that's really interesting because I think Rhiannon and I are, 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 have the opposite perspective, which is yeah. that, you know, you you are told that childbirth is intolerably pa- painful, right? And actually, you know, my take on it is that women's power, this this really innate, as you say, Ellie, you know about the the biological experience. And just for listeners, I ended up I had preeclampsia. I ended up having to have a C section, so I haven't had a natural birth experience. I but I did a lot of prep for one, and a lot of that was the stuff around undoing what we're told, which is basically you won't be able to handle it, and uh, you know it's this terrible thing. And like you say, the tears and everything. And this. And when I went to the antenatal classes, what was really interesting was my husband and I were really well prepared people might say naively but I have I, I I was my sister's birth partner I have been there I have seen I have participated in that process right and so we had chosen to follow this this method it's called the Bradley method where um, my goal was an entirely natural birth by which I mean no drugs vaginal delivery um, I was hoping to do a water delivery um, and we got to these classes and I was shocked by the number of women who really didn't know like what goes on in your body when you're giving birth. Um, and there was this particular woman who said, oh, well, I know a lot of friends who've had really traumatic or family members who've had traumatic birth experiences. And she said, so, you know, so I have really tried not to read anything or listen to anything about giving birth. And she said, what I want to know is, how soon can I get the epidural? And then me, you know, being like a bit of a dick, not not intentionally, but I was like, oh my God, she's walking into a bad birth experience by not knowing what it is. So then I said, you know, put my hand up and, and said, oh yeah, but isn't it the case that, you know, when you get an epidural, often it slows down the process, which is very true. And so often then you need syntocinin to try to get the contractions going again. And then with an epidural, these days they do what they call walking epidurals, but you know, you often end up in that traditional posture of giving birth, you know, on your back, which means your coccyx can't get out of the way, which means you're far more likely to tear slash need an episiotomy, which for anyone who doesn't know is when they cut you in your perineum, <clears throat> which is my biggest fear <laughs> personally. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's this idea that, oh, uh, you know, and, and, and it's again this thing of taking away women's power and and society, you know, societal and doctoring and everything. Everyone wanting to intervene, so mm. you often actually end up with a, I would argue, a much more traumatic birth experience than if you know if you're well and healthy and your baby's healthy and everything goes as it should. Of course, as I, I mean, I myself have had a C-section 
because of preeclampsia, you know, there are times when, thank God for modern medicine, because my baby and I would both be dead back, you know, 50 or 100 years ago. Um, but it's really interesting that, you know, Ali, you sort of say, oh, that, that you're not showing that side of it. Whereas I think Nana and I are both saying, oh, we're showing that side of it way too much. And actually, there it is really possible to have this um, positive birth experience. And if anything, a lot of women are scarred from being told that they're not able to do this, that they're not capable of it. Yeah. Well, and, and actually, I've got a friend who feels guilty. She doesn't talk about her birth because it wasn't that bad. Mm. Like, yeah. and so which she is feels insane, right? Yeah, that she she just says, oh, you know, like she she was induced, and then from there, it actually wasn't bad, and and it was everything was lovely, as lovely as pushing a baby out can be. Um, but she feels guilty for that. That's so weird. Which is I think- mad. Yeah, I've like mine is um, I I see a lot of heartbreak. So again, like I think just through having conversations with with people like yourselves and and other people in my in my circles, I feel like I see a lot of heartbreak in this sort of stuff. And I feel people are starting to open up more about the experiences around childbirth, not just the pregnancy and like the um not the pregnancy, sorry, not the actual birth, but like more so the actual journey of trying to get pregnant. And I think the conversations around miscarriages are becoming a little bit more open and people yeah. are choosing to you know have conversations about them when they're happening because otherwise you know there's no support for these people going through this because no one knows they're going on and I think for me when I look at like weigh up my options again you, you can never you can never know if you're going to get an easy time right you never know if you're going to get that nice easy pregnancy the birth is going to be great you're going to have a healthy child that healthy child is going to move out at some point in their future of the home and you know live a independent life you don't know if that's what you're going to be given. And for me, when I look at if I want to have children, I'm not prepared to take on the pain and the heartbreak of of miscarriages, of IVF treatment, of, you know, years and years and years of trying to get pregnant and not getting pregnant and the, all that stress. And I think that knowing that makes me feel like I'm not ready. Um but also, I think because I recognize how much women go through and it is a traumatic experience and you are testing your body to the absolute limit of what is it's capable of, I feel that for me, it's actually been quite an empowering, it's been quite empowering to have conversations with women to be like, this is what they've gone through and this is, you know, what they've done. Um, but I just, I, I, again, I'd love to experience it, but not enough to then want to, to have do the it. child, to have the child. <laughs> yeah. Also have any of the th- any of the yeah. complications that could yeah. come arise, and I'm not, and that for no, me is it's, it's not enough to go in with your eyes open. I think, but the other thing yeah. is, you know, we are stronger than we know. I mean, I think I've shared on the podcast before, but I had three miscarriages before we had our baby, and everyone is individual, right? Like, like for some people, one miscarriage can destroy them, um, and. You know, they they were devastating for us. Um, but also, you know, I think my husband and I uh, processed, you know, and grieved and all that sort of thing quite well. And I think there's a, there's a huge power, which I've said to you guys before, in community. And it's this, uh, you know, in the olden days, you'd, you'd, you know, I don't know, sit around the campfire and the women would have, have their conversations. Because this is the other thing. When you've had a child or when you're having a child, it seems like other women are often then much more willing to talk to you about their experiences. And I don't think it's that they don't 
that they're not happy to speak to people who haven't had them. It's just they're like, oh, I don't want to bore you or freak you out or gross you out or whatever. Mm. Um, but so for me, you know, there were certain podcasts. There was talking to family members who'd been through similar things. There was obviously talking to my husband. Um, but, you know, I, th- I, I, I do think you have to get to the point where it's something you want. And for me, it was sort of like a relatively overnight switch, you know, and, I, and I'm still not, you know, like I'm, I've never been clucky. I've never. I'm, I'm still not sure <laughs> I want one. <laughs> <laughs> but this is and I, you know, I mean, I'm like, I'm nice to other people's children, but you know, I'm not one of these ones who's like, oh, where are the kids at the party? I'm going to go and talk to them. I'm like, I'm going to go and talk to the adults, you know, <laughs> and it comes in all different shapes and sizes is what I'm trying to say. And if it's right yeah. for you, great. If it's not right for you, equally great. Yeah, You know, I think it's in our age group, like 40% of women are childless by choice. And isn't it fucking fantastic that we can live in a world where you can choose not to have children? Because very recently, that wasn't your prerogative. Yeah, And, you know, let's just all be okay with each other's choices and be okay with our own choices and be okay to go, okay, well, maybe the clock will run out, but I'm not ready yet, you know, and so future proofing isn't isn't good enough reason for me to have a child or as you're saying Ali you know I would like to know what my body's capable of because this is this is a very sort of primal thing in a way this is what my body's for but also my body's for many many other things you know and 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 I'm not going to be incomplete if I don't bear a child and that's and I and I this this is going to ruffle some feathers I'm sure but I also part of me feels like you know the stat you just said like 40% of, of women are now like childless of uh, a certain age group and part of me feels like back in the day as well like perhaps you know Rihanna you've touched on it I definitely experienced it but like when we feel fulfilled in our lives and we've got the hobbies and we've got the interest and we've got the financial stability to be able to live fulfilled lives like that then we're not looking for ways to fill our time and I think back in the day if you weren't if you were denied a lot of opportunities to enter the workforce or to have communities and hobbies and friendships like outside of your neighbors um the ability to drive and you know all that kind of stuff then maybe having a family was like the logical step because it was like what else are you going to do with your time yeah and I like and I, I I don't think that's everyone I'm sure there were lots of people throughout history who desperately wanted children but I feel like like I can't imagine a lot of mums went into it going I want 15 kids I think a lot of the time it was just you know like there was no contraception the dad was a bit horny and out yeah, popped the kids and you were home yeah and, um, and you know many of us died in childbirth back in the day also that yeah. um and the thing is if you don't have community or if it's just not for you, it is a tremendously isolating experience, I would say. And I think that's one of the things I would say today, but actually it, it can be true throughout history um, to reiterate, either because you actually didn't want it or because you don't have a good community around you. You know, yeah. being at home all day with a child, it's it's both this wonderful experience and can is it it's so hard because it's not even like, you know, I mean, I've being a lawyer at the top of my game in top law firms and you work so hard but you have moments where you can go to the fucking toilet you know <laughs> by yourself you can get a cup of tea when you're responsible for this person you know you're mm. never you never have that moment of downtime and I have you know the most involved partner and his work is very flexible and we have co-parented throughout. I mean, I wouldn't personally, I'm not cut out for this to go in, you know, but I do think I have so much compassion for like 
that traditional, you know, the wives of the partners of law firms who, you know, their husbands are never there. And then their husbands often choose to stay away because, oh, at home it's all just loud and uh, and she's not very happy. Of course she's not fucking happy because she's parenting <laughs> on her own and it's the most difficult thing you can do. Yeah. This was like we spoke a little bit about, you know, is it is it anti-feminist to enjoy motherhood? And I think that's a really interesting question and an interesting uh, statement because I think that um, the little bit of research I've done obviously uh, there's also debate about which wave of feminism we're currently in but let's for argument's sake we are in the fourth wave um, and I think the reason we pushed out the third is because of technology so we're much more in a digital age of feminism which has meant that like communities can build a lot quicker um, movements such as like Me Too can kind of get a lot more traffic build up momentum um, but the second wave feminists they they spent a long time trying to trying to show that women weren't that much different to men, right? That anything that men could do, we could do. Um, and there's fabulous t-shirts and anything you can do, I can do bleeding, which I think is is brilliant. Um, but, the, you know, we're talking here like in the 60s and the 70s and they were looking at the idea, um, well, inspired by Betty Friedan. Is that right? Friedan? Um, Friedan. Betty Friedan's 1963 book, The Feminine Mystique. And she argues in that that women were chafing against the confines of their roles as wives and mothers. And so it was kind of building on the first wave feminism and it challenged what women's roles in society were and should be. And activisms at that time um, focused on the institutions that held women back. And, you know, they took a closer look at why women were oppressed within those um, within those institutes. And part of that was looking at the traditional gender roles and family roles that women had taken up. Um, and because of all that, a lot of uh, those who aligned to feminism at the time, they resisted the traditional femininity. They didn't want mm. to be aligned to um, the female. And so things like the colour pink got thrown out or they, how they dressed um, became much more masculine. And the roles they took on, you know, they deliberately chose uh, male roles and perhaps they would have fallen going becoming mothers because, you know, it was a direct um, fuck you to, to everything they've been told that they should be. But I think, uh, yeah, and I think the re but the reason for that is because feminism was still a relatively new thing, and the push for equality was still relatively new, and we were still still had a long way to go, and so you go to extremes. Yeah, we had a lot of bullshit to undo, right? <laughs> yeah, so I think you go to extremes. So the second wave feminists were going, "Don't have children, don't be a mum, don't be a housewife, don't do any of that stuff." Yeah. And actually, it's we've got. I feel like we've got to a point now mostly there's a few exceptions that I'll, I'll mention in a second where we are saying you can bloody choose if you want to be a mum be a mum and you can enjoy it and you don't have to go back to work if you don't want to you do that like you do you if you don't want to have kids don't like and go and stay in in work if you want to have kids and you want to go back to work do that too um there's still clearly lots and lots of things that make it very hard for women um and and also but i to say to suggest that it's anti-feminist to enjoy motherhood i think is not like i think that's bollocks um and actually there's um there's a bit of a push recently on instagram for like trad wives and so not uh, yeah. so much like wearing wearing traditional clothes there's those like trad women who wear like 50s clothes and want to live Sweet a 50s Lord. lifestyle i assume they don't want to be raped by their husbands but you know it's um they wear they kind of take on that old-fashioned role but yeah. there's a few things that popped up on my instagram where it's women saying i am choosing to be a housewife and this is my role and i love it and that is my choice 
and no one's made me do this and that's what I want to do and I think and and it's and pushing that as part of feminism yeah absolutely but I wonder I'm curious then what the stats will be in 20 30 years time because at the moment the evidence is that um, children male and female benefit in terms of at least what I value from having a mother who works outside of the home which Mm. is the daughters are more likely to be more highly educated and be paid more and the sons are more likely to do more of the housework and that sort of thing and wouldn't it be wonderful if we raised our you know this is the thing that I say you better raise your boy to be worthy of my girl because she's not gonna put up with that shit you know um that's not denigrating women who choose to be at home and that's I think a really important thing where hopefully what will happen is that if that's the choice you make, that will be equally equally respected because it's really fucking hard and it's really important. The other thing is, you know, anything you can do, I can do bleeding. Having kids doesn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, an awe. Um, I, I, I don't like that you can have it all because I think that puts unreasonable pressure on women. I think we, at least, you know, for me, I've acknowledged and I've really enjoyed acknowledging for myself that actually this is where I am right now. I don't want to right in this moment. And I mean, you know, ha- like straight after giving birth and that sort of thing, be trying to like in the US having to go back after three months. I would have been a mess if I had to go back after three months personally mm. and try to do a high power job but now my child is nine months old and I'm you know I'm actually in the space where I'm like yeah I'm ready to go and be a badass in a corporate environment and it's each to their own and the thing for men is yeah we can do this amazing thing where we can carry life and 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 give birth to children and then you can equally nurture them and we can we can either be in the home and do amazing things or we can be in the workplace and do amazing things. And, you know, soz that you don't get to do that. So one thing I've noticed, and it was quite interesting, I was um, I was at a wedding on Saturday and a conversation came up and there was a baby being passed around the table and it was a very tiny little baby um, and he had a feeding tube. So he was having trouble um, feeding naturally and they had to um, the tubes on for a couple of months, I believe. And uh, there were a couple of things that happened. One was um, the reason they were at the wedding and the baby was there, I felt confident enough I could go up to the parents who um, are related to my husband and, and ask, you know, how the baby was and what was why, what was the reason for the tube. And she actually thanked me for asking. She said, like, lo- loads of people tipped her around that as a conversation. So that was one thing. Um, and actually, it kind of allowed her the opportunity to talk not just about her, her son's um, experience, but also her experience as a mum. She felt guilty that she couldn't feed her son. Um, but equally, it also meant that her husband had the opportunity to feed their son, which is probably something that wouldn't have been as available had she breastfed the whole time. Um, mm-hmm. So that was quite an interesting paradox. And then uh, the second thing was we sat at the table and um, was talking to another mum who's got two two girls and um, slightly older. And she was talking about the fact that, you know, eventually she's going to have to go back to work because, you know, the finances of the house require um, a kind of additional money coming in. And the way she spoke about it was such a like, you know, um, it was that awe. It was like stay at home or go and get a career. And there was this kind of, 
you know, like use one or the other and one's good and one's bad. And I think that like we need to start moving away from that. And one of the most interesting things, I think, moving through like the second wave feminism through to like third and fourth is that second, again, it was absolute extremes, right? And at the uh, the back end of the second wave, there were three types of feminism that emerged. One was mainstream liberal. They looked at uh, like institutional reforms. They looked at uh, trying to reduce gender discrimination, giving women access to like male dominated spaces trying to promote equality you didn't have the radicals so they wanted to reshape society entirely they were like you know this system is inherently patriarchal and the only way we're going to make it better is by a complete overhaul um and they resisted the belief that men and women are basically the same so that's the line they took and then the cultural uh, was the third one and they have a similar view to the radicals and they taught themselves that there is a female essence that's distinct from men and then the third way feminism came in and this was coming into the 90s, right? So the, the suggestion being as a little bit more liberal, women started wanting to reclaim their femininity back again. So you were finding that they were expressing themselves uh, through the way they dressed, they were like the way like, the sexuality, uh, the way they spoke, the way they acted, you know, and they were trying to bring back some of that femininity that they felt they had to let go of in the second wave. And I think what I'm starting to see now is because of all that work that had been done in those first and second waves in terms of fighting for equal pay, fighting for the rights of women to be not discriminated against in the workplace, to make sure there were maternity pay and policies in place that protected women. The work that went into actually showing the value of, of housework, of motherhood, of you know being that stay-at-home parent, I think what that has brought now into the 21st century is the ability for women to go, I want to be a stay-at-home mum and this should be respected the same way that my husband bringing home a paycheck is respected. And I think that th that for me has been the most probably empowering thing is it's not saying men and women are the same. It's saying that whatever you choose, it should be valued the same. Yeah, or and if the man chooses to stay at home, right? 100%. I mean, in Denmark, yeah. three, three, four days after my daughter was born, the law changed. And so if you want to get the state um uh what's it called you know like parental pay yep. you actually i think the fathers have to take a minimum of oh, it's 11 or 14 weeks something like that there's a few exceptions if you're self-employed and that's the thing um but the idea is this thing of which we've talked about before which is until you create either create the opportunity for the fathers who really want to do it or force the ones who have, perhaps have a more old world view, it's going to hold women back. Yeah. Um, and I think that's fantastic. You know, one of the things that I would definitely do differently next time around um, is get my baby onto a bottle earlier. Now, that would be expressed milk in my case because I can breastfeed. Mm -hmm. But if she, or, you know, next baby was prepared to, take a bottle that would actually take some of that um, parenting off my hands and allow my husband to you know share in what is what is a lovely thing and yeah even it up a bit more in that respect yeah um also you know with the with as you say the stay-at-home mums equally you know stay-at-home dads which you see yeah. more of and if that's what the couple chooses if that's what the works for their family you know we should just support it it should just be flexible yeah, yeah. the point but is think, you know people should be able to do whatever suits them in their family unit yeah but i think unfortunately 
the because women have traditionally been the stay-at-home parent mm. and because that work hasn't been valued and you know to a certain extent I, I would say women have been like treated second-class citizens and then mothers have been treated worse so than than women and then you know you get into the intersectionality of you know then black women having a worse experience yeah. than white um when you start looking at all that like you can understand the resistance of men then wanting to be a stay-at-home parent not only because of social taboos but also the fact that they know they're not going to get valued for it they know that they're their time and their effort and energy isn't going to they be... Tend, they tend to get valued more than the women do because they're seen as some kind of hero for doing it. But they don't get any financial, you know, like, yeah. um, what's the word? I've got repercussions in my head and it's wrong. Remuneration. Remuneration, yeah. Any of those. Um, and I think that's the that's the thing for me. Like, the reason people resist so much the idea of being the stay-at-home parent is because they know how shit a gig it is. They know mm. that there's, you know, and absolutely men do get applauded a lot more for the most basic of tasks. But you tend to find that, like, society doesn't value them. And that's a really hard concept. And I think that's probably why women have so long pushed for those careers, pushed for higher education, as they should, because they know that unless they're competing alongside the men, they're not going to be valued in the same way. And I think that's where, like, I don't want to be the stay-at-home parent. That's definitely, I think, where my idea came from, that I don't want to be a mum. And that was such a strong thinking when I was 18, was because I, I wanted to be respected like the men. I didn't mm. want to be treated as a second-class citizen. And also society in the UK is still set up to make it almost punitive for both parents to work yeah. because of the cost of childcare. You know, that's one of the things here in Denmark and in Sweden it's even better. Yeah. But daycare, I put that in inverted commas, is probably like £500 a month, including like feeding the kid and everything. You drop them off in the morning, you pick them up in the afternoon. But here it's also part of socialisation. It's not somewhere you dump your kid while you go to work it's what you do so your kid learns you know gets to play with other children and learns how to be a member of society it's not a bad thing it's a good thing and it's yeah, it's a very socially cohesive society it's what you do you know yeah. and that also you know there are still stay-at-home parents here but it also makes it much more, you don't have to feel guilty, like, oh, I'm doing a bad thing for my child. Like, you know, the way I was raised, by, and, and and this changed actually with my little brother because my parents split up and my mother went to full-time work and my little brother went to a very lovely, um, you know, daycare. But her her thinking had to shift significantly, my mother's, because she certainly had had the narrative before that, that, you know, well, you're not doing the right thing by your child if you put them into care. Hmm. Whereas actually, arguably here, I'm very comfortable and confident putting my child into care. Hmm. And I would almost feel like I was, well, I would feel like I was denying them all that socialization and all that fun and opportunity if I had them at home and so it's very society specific as well and it's what the society builds for families let alone you know the sex of the parents you know what I mean yeah because also culturally as well there's a lot of cultures where raising a child just on your own is that's taboo like you know mm. the expectation is that your child would be with other children in the neighborhood or cousins or yeah you know, other family, um, other family, other children within, you know, the family unit. Um, so the fact that we've got this, you know, we can do everything on our own mentality within the UK, that that is really alien to a lot of other cultures, yes. other societies. And I think again, that puts additional pressure, certainly on mums, if you don't have that supportive parent, but on both parents as well. If you've, you know, if you're in that and you don't feel like you've got that support unit, I think that's um, puts additional pressure and stress on, on new parents. 
Um, and then, of course, the uh, if you do go and join like a community of other mums, you become competitive with what your child is doing and you get judged again. Well, see, well, see this is interesting, right? Because I was, uh, you know, you got the choice when you had a child here of, of joining a, it is a mother's group. Um, as progressive as society is here, it's still a mother's group. Um, and Are so there I any dads put, in that beside the name? Is there any fathers who do? There attend? weren't primary care of fathers initially, but now at this point, um, uh, the dads, I'm just trying to think, three, yeah. So the, the fathers in the group, yep, are taking their parental leave, okay. which is nice because then we meet up and often without the babies. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, but so I was put into a, a foreigner one, right, because uh, you don't want to impose on, on people where you can't speak their language, even though Danes can all speak amazing English. Um, and actually I found, so there were four of us originally, and um, – it's been wonderful and and but the thing is like speaking to the other women in the group they said that a lot of their friends have been put into one and they've either never met up or they just didn't gel uh but for us you know and and you have that moment where you're on the whatsapp group and you're like oh am i like humble bragging right now about how my kid could crawl at seven and a half months but fortunately most of us have a pretty robust sense of of uh i, I don't know reasonableness like we don't we don't assume that that's what's going on, you know, and you can, you can be happy. Yeah. And you can be happy for the other parents that their kid has hit that milestone, even if yours hasn't yet without freaking out. Yeah. We did have an issue recently with the fifth member who joined later and is, <laughs> I don't think coming back for precisely that reason around, you know, feeling that someone's judging your kid and that sort of thing. But this is, this is anyway, this is a common thing but that also discuss, right? Like women shouldn't be, or, I mean, parents, right? But but we shouldn't be criticizing each other. You know, it's hard enough as it is. We should be building yeah. each other up. But also, there's the thing like just because your mum doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get along with another mum because you're both mums. You know, like I was. No, and the reason really... that we all got along is because I mean, you know, two of them are ten years younger than me, but we, I think, we were all just quite similar people. We'd all had our careers and mm. planned to return to them. Um, but at different speeds, you know, one of them has gone back to work when her kid was, I don't know, maybe seven months old. Um, one of them is about to go back to work. So her her child's like nine and a half months old. I'll go back to work in a bit. And the other one might be off for a bit longer mm -hmm. um, because she's really enjoying this phase and they can afford it and all that sort of stuff. Um, but we, I think also all just wanted that community. And I don't know, yeah, just it couldn't be bothered weren't interested in you know being mean to each other um but yeah. but the thing yeah, is like we had in january time. so so when our kids were around six months old right or five and a half months old whatever we all had a dinner out and it was this lovely dinner with cocktails and wine and delicious food and we all left the kids at home and we just had the best night out and that's the thing like we we can and we didn't discuss our children you know we enjoy each other's company aside from our children but it's so yeah. wonderful like the first time we met equally when our kids were a couple of weeks old the first thing we did was just tell each other our birth stories and that wasn't anyone's plan going in but that's you know that's what you wanted to discuss that's what you needed to share with other people yeah yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, 
It's also like where you probably feel there's like I I don't I don't feel awkward around parents, but I do feel like I don't know what I'm allowed to ask and what I'm not allowed to ask. And so I do also feel like I, I like tiptoe around it. And because I'm not a mum, I, I often feel like I can't I'm never gonna give advice, you but know, do you know I what I mean? Like I don't think that's anything to do with being a parent or not being a parent. I think that's to do with the sort of person that you're dealing with. And that's exactly this issue that yeah. we had in the mother's group. Someone taking offense for the sake of taking offense when clearly no offense was intended. Yeah. And I don't know if I've said this before, but my sister is uh, half Caucasian, half Filipino. We don't look alike. We're not actually blood related. Well, we are blood related, but we're not biological sisters. I forget to mention it to people because equally, why would I? And then I've had people say after they meet her or see a photo of her, they go, oh, she's a lot more tanned than you. Or, oh, so so you you have both the same parents? And the thing is, it's about motivation, right? Like like yeah. people, that's natural curiosity. No one is intending to be rude. They're not being racist in that, right? But a lot of people will take offense with that sort of question for the sake mm. of it. And it's, it's exactly the same, I think, with parenting. You know, if people want to be precious and get up on their high horse and be offended by something you ask, they yeah. will. Even if they find your question a little offensive or naive or whatever, if you know that it's not coming from a mean place, why take offense? Why not just go, okay, well, you know, uh, th- there was an example you gave a long time ago, Ali, about where you said something. It was with the, uh, you you and Anne-Marie discussed it. I can't remember what it was, but it was something where you said something. It was Anne-Marie talking about one of her friends and you said something and then you realized that, oh, that might be offensive or Anne-Marie told you off or something. And and, and then and you oh, told yeah, the yeah. example of at work where you said the thing and then you realized straight away, um, and I'm not repeating the thing because, you know, yeah. but you realize straight away, oh, yeah. actually, maybe that will be offensive to someone and you owned it, you yeah. know? This, so yeah. I actually think parenting is no different. It's just people. And if people want to take offense to stuff, they will. Yeah. Um, or if you're being people offensive, will then will they will. Judgy. Yeah, people will be judgy, won't they? There are people who it doesn't matter what you're doing, someone is going to judge. But, mm. yeah, you take it how you want to take it or, yeah, if it, if those kind of people are around you, perhaps say, please, like, I'll just get get rid of them. The other thing I'm aware of is that the fact that I've chosen to have a child doesn't mean that everyone's interested in my kid, you know? And I really try to be conscious of that when I'm together with my friends. Or not even try, because also, like, there's lots of things I want to discuss with them aside from my child. I also want to discuss my child, but Mm. that's not my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. But also, like, so... A couple of things there. One is I think the the parenting thing comes back to this idea that we have to parent on our own. And I think there is a nervousness that, you know, if you let go of a little bit of control, like your children are going to be ruined and like corrupted by the people that they end up spending time with. Right. So I think that because we've lost that community based parenting, there's probably a little bit more fear there in terms of like, oh, I don't have full control over my child. Um, the second thing there as well is just like, you know, I it took a lot of untraining for me to not see my mum as a mum. I know that sounds like a really weird thing to say, but like I was quite critical of my mum and my parents' divorce because of how she responded to the situation. And I think it's because in my head, I couldn't see her as anything other than a mother figure. Mm-hmm. And I think what's been really interesting for me as, as a part of this journey is actually over the last you know five, six years going, my mum is first and foremost her own person. Mm-hmm. Then she became a wife and then she also became a mother. But those two were, you know coincidence you know she has always been her own person and for me to be able to recognize her as a person Mm. who happens to be my mum 
was a massive learning curve for me. And I think part of that was because, you know, my mum really struggled after the divorce because she'd lost herself in that whole process. You know, for her, she identified first and foremost as a mum, then as a wife, and then as herself. So I think also like listening to you say like, you know, you're, you're recognizing your, your friends around you, but I also think it's really important that you are recognizing yourself in that as well and that you have interests, but you also happen to have a daughter. And I think that your daughter will benefit from seeing that because I really had to look for it. Um, well, I will have to see, right? Because I think it's a, it's a really strong thing to just see your parents as parents. And because traditionally mm. it's the fathers who've been, who've gone out to work and that sort of stuff, we've sort of been more capable of recognizing that they have a life beyond us. Um, but I think it's quite natural to be like, that's my mom, that's my dad. They don't exist beyond what I yeah. need of them. You know, yeah. um, something else that my sister said to me, which I think is very true, is when you, if you have children, you become much more forgiving of your own parents because <laughs> you just go, oh, because they're just people. And yeah. our parents often, you know, were so much younger than us. And, you know, our, our mothers in particular, yeah, they hadn't had the opportunities and the worldliness that we've got to have, you know, and they were often babies practically themselves. I mean, imagine having a kid at 26 or 28. I mean, I can't imagine. My mum had I would four of us, my well, parents. Yeah. My mum and dad had four of us by the time yeah. they were 26. Yeah, that's, oh, my that's God. Insane. And I just take my hat <laughs> off to them now, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, bloody hell. And so you do, uh, actually, it's quite it's quite good for your relationship with your parents often. You you suddenly forgive a lot of stuff that, that uh, you know, until then you were like, oh, no, that was, you were such terrible parents. You're like, oh, no, I get it. Oh, my God, I thank really you. I really get it. <laughs> also, I'm stubborn as fuck. So, like, you had four of, like, me running around the house. Like, yeah. there, there had to be boundaries put in place quite, like, and quite sturdy just, ones. just, like, walk out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not come back. No. Yeah, um, it's extraordinary. Um, I, I was hearing at 26 that, I mean, <laughs> after four babies, just that's mad. That's a lot. But also, like, I think it's super important. I, I just want to make sure that this is, is in the podcast at some point, this episode at some point. But like feminism, I think, has been blamed for a lot of things. And like, you know, you brought up, Rhiannon, the fact that you've got this like traditional wife trend coming back in. I, I've seen like women go, oh, my God, this is what feminists have fought for, you know, the right for women to go to work nine to five. And I just think it's worth pointing out, like women have always worked through history. Like there was only ever this like really small subset of women who afforded the luxury of not having to go to work. And for a long time, that was the upper class. And then for like a really blip part of history, it was like the 1950s to like mid 1960s, there was this, you know, both like the woman got to stay at home, the wife got to stay at home and that extended down to like working class families. But because it literally came off the back end of a war where loads of people have been killed, like the um, supply of uh, skill was in such high demand that actually wages were then really competitive. So the opportunity for there to be a single wage supporting a household, a wife Ali, and children. Sorry, I'm going to cut in and I would correct you there. What? It's not that those women got to stay at home in the sense that the other women didn't do all that and also often have to do work outside the home on top of that. You know, you see these like photos. I saw one recently of, it was in the UK somewhere and it was like Victorian times and it was a woman um, who had been fallen asleep at a table um, assembling matchboxes which is one of the lowest paid things with a child you know an illegitimate child who had fallen asleep at her feet and the reality of her existence was that she had to try to keep this child alive which I now think like oh my god like my child goes through so many nappies in a day like what did you do you know when they got nappy rash and stuff when you didn't have 
that available. That's just yeah. one aspect of parenting. And these women often on their own, but even, you know, with, let, let's be honest, often not necessarily very great fathers. And back then it was more that even if you were, you know, gay or lesbian, you still often ended up in a, in a forced hetero relationship. You know, women, women have always worked very hard, whether that's mothering, whether that's outside the home or more often than not, whether it's both together. Yes. More than men, not to make it a whole men thing, but you know, women, the, the load that women have carried throughout history yeah. is huge. Hunter-gatherer societies, you know, like 80% of the food or something came from the gather, gathering. Not that much came from the hunting. And mm. the women were also responsible for the children. And probably they were relieved when the men went off on one of their hunts because then they just got beaten a bit less and, and ate their nuts and berries. Yeah. This is the thing. So like, like the structures of... The ability for for women to do less work, less paid work, um, never no work, but just less paid work, is of how the society is set up, right? And unfortunately, for a lot of history, it's just not been feasible to have a household survive on one wage. There was like a very yeah. small part of history. And today, when we talk about like you know feminism is you know is to blame for the fact that children, like women are not having children anymore, there's a lot of people who go, well, can we just look to childcare costs? Can we look to maternity policies? Can we look at the fact that women still aren't getting paid? you know, equal to their male counterparts. And also, you know, when they leave the workforce to have children, they also then lose a percentage of their wage for every child they have and every year they're out of the workforce. Can we look at the pension hit on women who choose to take time exactly. out to raise their children? Yeah. So like yeah. when you start to look at, you know, motherhood and um, the systems which are in place to actually mm -hmm. support parents, yeah, until those are more robust and actually supporting people. And this is, again, you know, we, we've laughed at America. Like, they've taken away Roe versus Wade. They've taken away contraception and education around sexual or sexual education. And then they've take, also taken away all of the social services that could possibly be required by a new parent who didn't want the bloody kid to begin with because you're mm -hmm. refusing to let them have abortions. So there's... Oh, like, and, and refusing, to, yeah, refusing to let them have contraception because contraception and abortions tend to happen in the same place. And you can't get hold of contraception anymore. Right. Yeah. So, like, I just find it really, those who are like, oh, feminism are to blame for all this stuff going on. It's like, no, no. It's like what feminists have generally fought for throughout history is, like, more equality in policies mm. that support parents. And, and when you have those, of, you have proper choice. And until you have those, you don't have proper choice. Exactly. There's that famous um, international law case, I think it was in South Africa, where they said that thing about... Um, so you have substantive and you have formative equality, right? Formative equality is saying, well, everyone's born the same and it's an equal, even playing field and you all just get the same. That's bullshit. That's often what, you know, white men, not to pick on them again, but that's what they go for, you know? Substantive equality is recognising difference, treating difference differently, but rather than doing it to hold people back, you do it so positive discrimination, right? Where where there is a need to even the playing field because you're not starting from the same place, yeah. then it's totally legitimate to take positive measures for that group to even up the playing field. And that's the thing in our society. Equally for fathers or non-primary carers, because there are gay and lesbian couples out there equally who face these issues, um, 
about making it so that families can organize their lives however they wish and so that solo parents aren't mm. completely, you know, just completely discriminated against and disadvantaged. Yeah. Yeah. And again, for me, it just comes down to we have to start recognizing the value of parents and the work they put into it. And again, traditionally, that has been women. Um, Absolutely. But, actually- but it's actually, sorry, kids are really bad for the planet. So equally, <laughs> maybe we just don't. Don't really <laughs> Yeah. Because that's There's- one of the things, honestly, when we when we had a child and because we had always, you know, been, been keen on adopting and then... One of the reasons that we didn't was because, you know, we're living in a country where we're not citizens and it was very complex to try to even work out. And in the UK, your child can't be a citizen unless they were adopted in the UK, which is, I think, makes sense for, you know, trafficking reasons, but makes it very complex if you're not a national where you're living. Um, Not as an excuse. I'm sure there is a way we could have done it. But in all seriousness, you know, having kids is kind of selfish on one level when you're looking at the state of our planet so you know hats off to the people who choose not to Uh, yeah and I think that's a that I I hope that people don't listen to this don't think we're saying you know go and go and have kids that's saying make make a choice like whether you want to and if if you are doing it then you should be valued for that um I've been following someone on Instagram for a little while who does a lot of like uh, child-free posts um, she gets a lot of criticism because uh, for all the reasons and we've talked about being child free, childless, etc. and how people are criticised for that. Um, but she, yeah, she's she does a lot of like, let's celebrate other things, not just being parents. But this is all about if you are a parent, then you deserve to be respected and, and everything should be possible for you in the same way that it is for people who don't have kids. Yeah. And if you choose not to have a child... Stop telling people. Stop telling people to have kids and telling them to take folic acid. <laughs> the best kind of um, examples at the moment in terms of like a mirror is Seth Rogen standing up and saying he didn't want kids and him getting applauded for that. And, you know, he was so brave for stepping forward and good for him. And you've got people like Chelsea Handler who literally made headlines for the fact that she's anti-children and that she's like the devil woman and she's going to die old with her cats. So I think, you know, it very much is, there is still taboo, there's still stigma around women not wanting to have children. And I think like until motherhood is valued in the same way as um, just being a man is in society, I don't think that people are really ever going to feel that there's a choice because I think at the moment, people still chase careers thinking that's where the value in society lies. And so I think a lot more work has to be done in terms of showing what, you know, parenthood is all about and the work that goes into that and the value that brings to communities. And I know people have done that. They literally put monetary value against, um, you know, Mm -hmm. that stay-at-home parent. And I think that the more conversations we have and the more kind of honing in on that, that happens the better it's going to be for everyone because then men will feel more confident kind of going home and not getting the stigma women will feel more confident choosing which actually one is right for her versus which one she thinks she she, she should be doing at a point of her life so i think that yeah we need we need so i think i think it's yeah. very similar sorry to what you said about actually everything that's happened in the us with you know removing your right to an abortion removing your right to contraceptive contraceptions and also I mean, not that they ever had any social support, but also we're not going to do anything to help you with this kid we're going to force you to have. It's actually a similar thing there in terms of 
women it being okay to say I don't want children you know you are equally stigmatized you should want this it's that whole you know mother Mary saint thing and yes valuing motherhood is very important but also just valuing women as you say as human beings as equal to a man regardless of whether we want a child or not is I think the important thing you know we yes yes valuing motherhood but not in that saintly way of this is what you put on the planet to do and valuing our work because we're just as bloody good at it, probably better. It's definitely a drive-in, nothing else. Place, yes, good. definitely <laughs> drive-in. <laughs> Bring us home, Rhiannon. Okay, The Unfair Sex is not sponsored, so if you liked our show, please show your support by liking, subscribing and sharing on all your favourite social media platforms. We're on Twitter at The Unfair Sex, we're on Instagram and Facebook as at The Unfair Sex Podcast, and you can email us theunfairsex at gmail.com.